Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Dr. Frankenstein would be rolling in his grave. Monstrosity the Card Game is a colorfully twisted strategic card game in which you'll discover your inner mad scientist, create a bizarre monster, and bring it to life. With over a million different possible monsters combinations, no two games are the same. It's simple enough for beginners, with a strategic depth that will keep you coming back to the table for more. The uniquely strange art and darkly humorous theme give life to its addictively fun competition. The best part? You can track it on Kickstarter right now. Check out kickstarter.com and search for Monstrosity, the card game, for more information. Welcome everybody to today's episode. We are going to be talking about the third of the role-playing game pillars. Uh, We've already talked about the first two. We talked about building combat encounters a couple months ago. Then we talked about the role-play pillar, which was a fabulous episode. If you haven't checked that out, make sure you do that. Tonight, we are going to be diving into the exploration pillar. This is, I think, probably the pillar which is most misunderstood. So players aren't always consciously aware of the fact that they're in the exploration pillar. Glenn, when we were doing the role-playing pillar, actually, one of the things that I talked about a lot was the collaborative world-building aspect of my storytelling style. It's something that was highlighted, I think, on the f- the first episode of our Candlekeep actual play that hit uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Which was awesome. My first experience with it, it was great. Yeah, that episode is fantastic. It's getting great reviews. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, make sure you check it out. And it also gives a real tangible example of what we're talking about when I said collaborative world building. After we recorded that episode, though, uh, Glenn and I were talking a little bit. He's like, you know, that is as much exploration as it is role playing. And sort of what I what we realized was that it, it's both, right? It is a way to invite the players into the exploration pillar through the doorway of role play. Uh, and so it really kind of kind of gives both. So we'll be sure to go ahead and talk about that more uh, throughout the scope of our episode here. But uh, uh, Lee Wanika, why don't you give uh, your kind of opening words here about uh, exploration pillar? So I love the exploration pillar. I came to role playing through first edition D&D and basic when exploration was a much more important thing, right? At the time, exploration was almost more important than the role play. 
personally, the games that I was in adapted and changed that, right? And then later on, the hobby started catching up. I'm not saying we moved the hobby. I think lots of people were doing the same things all at the same time. And collectively, we were demanding more role play in yeah. our products and got better role playing games. But exploration didn't, should not have suffered. And then the games I played in, it didn't. We played on the Greyhawk map and all the modules were plotted out at the exact points. So our adventures were to go from the hex where we started to the hex where we were going. And we actually had encounters or adventures or things we had to do, challenges in each individual hex along the route. But 10 hex travel is multiple days of adventure. We could spend sessions just going from point A to point B just to do the module that was there. In our game world, we had a module that the DM was going to adapt to our game. But when the next module was somewhere else on the other side of the of, of the map, we had to travel there. And that built our stories. That yeah. built our campaign. That's how we play. That's how we adventure. And I think that exploration in particular was such a hallmark of Gygaxian style Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, when you think about those Gygaxian dungeons, they were super light on roleplay. They were super heavy on exploration and they were super heavy on combat. But it was really Absolutely. a two-pillar game. It was really a two-pillar yep. game. And I think yep. that when you're talking about Greyhawk, I mean, Greyhawk very much kind of in that same model. Greyhawk was a full world, but it was very much... I mean, Castle Greyhawk was kind of the original Gygaxian dungeon with its 50 levels, and you never knew what the hell you were going to find in that dungeon. And it's because you had to go ahead and explore from room to room to room to go ahead and, and get down uh, to progress your way through through the dungeon. So I think that that's a really key observation. Yeah, and then as we continued through the edition, second edition brought in a lot more role play, really cut back on the exploration. Like yeah. there were there were less rules, there were less tables, there were less things about exploration. And third edition had, to my recollection, very little on the exploration piece. It was almost hand wave the exploration, get to the point where you're role playing or fighting. Um, and I can't speak about fourth edition. I don't imagine it had much on exploration, but I ask and invite the audience, anybody who has played fourth edition to really fill me in because I have found that there are so many good things about fourth edition that I never recognized that I am hoping somebody can enlighten me. Maybe they had more exploration in fourth edition that I don't know. And maybe some good things that we can borrow and bring to our current table. 5e in contrast has the rules, but doesn't emphasize. So the pillar is fully there. I think it is largely, if not fully supported. There are feats that add to it. There are skills that add to it. Hell, there are subclasses that really add to it. And obviously the ranger class adds to that exploration pillar. But whether or not it's featured, that really depends on the module you're playing, the homebrew game you're in, or the folks that are actually at your table and what they like. That session zero really determines how much exploration is going to be in there. So what I think we'll do a great job tonight of doing is talking about all the things that are secretly exploration and allow the storytellers that are out there to emphasize some of those elements a wee bit more or help players use the abilities to showcase that a little bit more and show storytellers that they've honestly been doing it all along. They just may not have even realized. Well, you know, you both make some really great points and it makes sense. Because, uh, Josh, you mentioned the, the role-playing and the exploration aspect, not just through collaborative world-building, but in a lot of instances when you think about it, can really be built right into the same thing as the exploration piece, just like role-playing can be built into the combat. And combat can be built into the 
exploration piece and vice versa. Like they all interdepend to a certain degree. Lee, you mentioned the progression of exploration as we went from first edition through fifth. And it makes perfect sense because, you know, y'all are 100% right when you're talking about the uh, Gygaxian, as Josh coined the phrase, if that's not already a phrase. It's a great, it's a great, great adjective. Phrase. I've used it in several shows now. It's absolutely the yeah. perfect phrase. <laughs> that, that style, when D&D first came out, it was like, how can we, it, it felt like, how can we make a fantasy book or movie simulator? Like, what kind of rules can we put together so you can explore the dungeon fight the bad guys but that was the focus you know it was very much built on the exploration of the environment and killing whatever dozens of said dungeon you run across but it wasn't as role play heavy as it progressed one of the things that tsr and now wizards of the coast as they go has done is each time they put out a new edition they kind of have this habit of going after what they know needs to be worked on and letting the other part just kind of sit you know, you already know how to do exploration. We taught you that in first edition. So we're just going to focus on this. But the downside of that is anybody who hasn't been playing the game since the 70s doesn't have that frame of knowledge. So 5e does do a good job, I think, of putting it out there and putting it in the book and talking about its importance. But I don't think it does a great job of emphasizing how to do it and how to execute it. And like when I was looking into this, that's one of the things I ran into the most was storytellers out there complaining that, you know, they get that it's important and they're doing their best with it, but there's not a whole lot giving them a lot of guidance. So hopefully we'll be able to change that a little bit. Yeah. And I think that, I think Liwanika, the point that you brought up about the hex maps, the old second edition style hex maps, when you are going from point A to point B uh, and every time you're in a hex, there's a different check or a different possibility of running into bad guys or finding treasure or whatever like that, you know, that's really not there in, in fifth edition. Like they're, they're less common as a rules as written component of fifth edition. But, uh, you know, Liwanika, you just showed up your hex map that your blank whiteboard hex map that you're using. Uh, behind me here, you would see um, the um, the awesome hex map tiles that I uh, got from Headless Hydra Press that I'm using uh, right now because my players are moving from point A to point B, and so there's a they're uncovering a hex map as they as they go along, and it's uh, using these great these great magnetic tiles on like a, a two by three foot whiteboard. Um, so it's awesome. It really gives me a really great visualization uh, aspect of it. But those are those are things that we are kind of bringing to the table that are not explicit in the 5e rules, right? 5e just says, yep, exploration is important, and then leaves it at that. Glenn, I think your observation is a really key one. The interesting thing about the uh, whiteboard that I have, and there are actually two pages of it, is that this particular product is actually official 5e content. This is the D&D Wilderness Kit Dungeon Master screen. So of all the Dungeon Master screens you can get, if you want to really dive into or get some basic tools that's official content for the 5e game, this is the Dungeon Master screen to get. Now, I do not think it's the best Dungeon Master screen. I actually use several, and I use different ones for different issues, right? I use the the big dragon, red dragon one. I use my own blank one where you put in your own sheets and stuff yeah, like that. that's what I use, yeah. Uh, I use a couple of the. I use actually two of those, and it depends on what game I'm playing or actually what I'm planning for the adventure, which one I take out. But I got this because I heard uh, uh, through a Facebook post that there were some interesting things in there that would be useful. And I had determined 
when I saw this episode on our schedule and we hadn't gotten to it, that when we were going to get to it, I wanted to be better prepared. So I got this so I would have a few extra tools that I could have tested out so I can talk about it, but also so I could add that pillar back into the games I'm running at my tables. I've run two games ongoing and I wanted to put exploration back in. Glenn, you're the play, uh, a player in one of those games, and the last three or four sessions were about getting in, exploring. There's a lot more skill checks. There's a lot more things about the environment, moving. Uh, there's an avalanche. There's camping. There's there's all those things. To me, all of those things fell into the exploration piece through the lens of role play and combat in some situation, but you're literally moving from environment to environment within an environment. And basically that was a hex that I put into my game that had several things set up. And this was how the party moved through it. And that's kind of what I was doing was what are different ways to explore exploration and use some of the tools that I have at my, at the ready. I think one of the other issues with the concept of exploration is just that it's so big, like just listening to us talk, um, if you didn't know what we were already talking about, I was just thinking this, it would probably be hard to understand exactly what we mean when we're just saying exploration, travel maps, hexes, <clears throat> particularly since we're a podcast, so we did show it on the camera. That's not going to do you all any good. Right, yeah. It might be important to talk about what exploration is yeah. for a second. Absolutely. It's not just like Lewis and Clark going across the country and, and you know, when during westward expansion. And looking at, you know, just natural environments, when you're talking about a role-playing game, when the pillar says exploration, what it's talking about is all things that you, your character, and your party do to discover the world that you've put them in. Whether it's literally opening a door, going in and exploring a physical location, or discovering a new valley and a mountain, or a new dungeon, or going through the town and the market and exploring the NPCs that you've created and experiencing the colors of, you know, whatever's going on in the bazaar. So it can be any part of the world. It can include role-playing. It can include combat. It can include the environment. It can include all three. In fact, when you get into dynamic combat encounters where you're involving the environment dynamically, like Lee was talking about in a game that I ran with him recently in an avalanche with an avalanche. I'm actually working on one for an upcoming game. It was used in uh, drinking and dragons uh, where the final encounter takes place in a rocky shoal with the tide coming in. So each, every round there's a change from waves coming in waves going out. Um, and every little bit you can add that just adds depth to your environment, your story, your NPCs, they're, what they're doing, their actions, their skill checks, all of those little reveals, that's what exploration is. Yeah, I, it, it is a hugely broad topic, and I think that's kind of why it's so confusing. You, I think you, you nailed it right on the head, Glenn, that, you know, because exactly. it, it's about, it is about the exploration of the environment that the players find themselves in, and it is, it is... It has to be player driven on some level, right? Because, like, you know, if you're, this isn't the combat is something, for example, that you can run from from the storyteller position, and you can run it to your players, right? You can say enemies are coming at you. What do you do? 
But the in order to explore the environment, that's really something that the players have to say, okay, if we're camping out for the night, I want to investigate the copse of trees over there that I think I saw something run into. Or uh, I'm going to go hunt for food, and so I'm going to use my nature check to go ahead and do a perimeter and see if I can find evidence of animals that are edible. Or I'm going to kind of determine, you know, one of the things that we talked about, uh, or that we have on the list to go ahead and talk about later, is the whole concept of weather. And so, you know, your druid saying, okay, what how is the climate in this area? How are things going to modify? You know, what's, what's, how can I make a survival check to go ahead and do it? So it's, it is one of those things that there are multiple skill checks that can come into exploration as a, as a practice. They're for the most part player generated. And I think I see from the look on Lee's face, I suspect that he's going to go ahead and tell me that I'm wrong, but that's okay. Cause that, that, that's, or that, that he disagrees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, go so, ahead. This is the part of the podcast where I say, <laughs> Josh, you're only 50% there. And I'm going to go back to one of my absolute favorite things we have ever done on the show. And we keep coming back to it. And it's backgrounds. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Josh is absolutely right. It is largely, mostly, in fact, I would say probably 52% player driven. They ask the questions. However, the other part is the DM has to be prepared and has to have an answer. Yep. The DM has to support that. Players ask questions anyway. They stop asking questions when DMs are not prepared and don't have answers. If the DM doesn't have an answer for what's the weather like today and they're like, oh, it's sunny again, or oh, it's rainy again, or this one DM that I knew from about 35, 40 years ago, it will never rain again. People stop asking questions when DMs stop having answers. Yep. Storytellers stop having answers. What you want to do is talk about it from the perspective of backgrounds. If you've got five players in your game, each of them have a background. Unless they're all from the same town, they come from five separate environments. That means there's five different normal average types of weather. Use Josh's tool as far as collaborative world building. What's the weather like where you're from? Tell me about the weather where you're from. That's your first, that's your intro. Like, man, I just got here. I love the weather in this town. You know, the, the question could be to the players as they meet in that tavern for the first time, how different is the weather here from the weather where you're from? And let them do that. You as a storyteller now, jot that down in your notes, now have the average weather for that place. England is frequently rainy. Seattle rains at 4 o'clock every afternoon. San Diego, it rains, I don't know, once a decade or so. Uh, you know, uh, but when it rains, it washes out mountains, right? These are things that you can use. You use elements uh, when it comes to weather from the real world. But if that's done collaborative, collaboratively through your backgrounds and part of that fabric, those are the campfire stories that the players are telling around the campfire during your long rest. So you get a great role-playing scene. They're exploring the world. Yeah. Now you're taking those notes, and when the campaign visits that area, farm that. <laughs> That's when the battle takes place that one time in 10 years where it rains in Castle San Diego and the mountains are washing out. That's when you're having the battle, right? You can do things like that in your game, and you don't have to necessarily spend decades writing it. It's just creating opportunities to learn it and then recognizing when to use it. 
and and that that's a technique. I mean, not not to too de- not to derail too far here, but that's that's very much that technique of letting a campaign write itself. Right? How you can you can build generations of players in the campaign, and they always remember the stories of the battle of the rainy mountain because it rains so infrequently, and there was the gigantic battle the one time that it right right. So I mean, that's that's letting a campaign write itself. So I love that you both keep bringing up collaborative world building. And I find it kind of entertaining that you got in a mild disagreement over who's more uh, responsible for the concept of exploration. Um, Because when you think about the word collaboration, it all goes right back to the social contract at the beginning. Whenever you're wondering whose responsibility it is, it's everybody's, right? You can be the player who walks into a room, looks around, and your storyteller's done a great job of describing like, an opulent wizard's office at the top of a tower and all the things that are in it and how amazing everything is and some awesome details. And I guarantee you, he's got some stuff hidden in different containers and spaces around the room, maybe behind a picture. Don't be the player who says, we just search everything because you're destroying the exploration piece of the game right now. You're basically doing what the DM's doing to you when you say, I I searched the wardrobe. And he says, well, uh, why don't you just make a search check? All right. Well, you go through the whole room and all you find is three gold, a pair of shoes and a secret door, you know, like just gives you a summary list. He's failed you. You both have to work together because the storyteller. And I admit, I actually recently did that because I ran out of time in a combat and I gave him the list at the end and I hated doing it. Um, so I planned it now so that I actually planned it now so that when I set up a boss fight, with like stuff to learn, explore, or discover at the end, I no longer will do it at the end of a session. I now save it for the start of a mm. session. So it's never cut short. And we always have time to go through whatever it is, whether it's fully exploring the priest's quarters or the bad guy's lair without it having to be cut short and then truncated. But keep in mind, it's both people and it will always be both people. Players, you need to do, you need to be invested and interested. If you're not, why are you playing? And storytellers, you need to be coming up with the detail for your players to discover. And that does mean a lot of work. It does. Because most of the time, I don't even think about the weather. They just, uh, Julie and Josh just had like a 15 minute conversation about different ways to use weather. I will when it matters. And I know it makes a difference in the scene, but there are so many pieces you can pick up and there are so many details that you can plant and tuck in. Obviously, you don't want to drive yourself crazy and override it, like Lee mentioned earlier. But you got to do your part so the players can do theirs and everybody can have fun discovering everything together. Yeah. And I think that that scene that you're talking about, you know, when we're talking about exploration, largely what we're talking about are skill challenges in the intelligence and wisdom categories for the most part. That's where you're going to be looking. And so that that wizard's that scenario right there in the wizard's office where, you know, you're, you're trying to look around like a regular investigation check. Not so sexy, but like an arcana check to go ahead and see, you know, based on what I know about wizards, where would a where would an illusionist tend to hide things that would important and that you know or what kind of wizard are we looking at you know that kind of thing to go ahead and glean information that is beyond just kind of your normal investigation right. check i mean investigation is a super useful skill don't get me wrong and it certainly has its purposes if if a player if I was in that situation right there and a player was in the and it's like I want to make an arcana check to see what I can glean about this wizard by looking through his stuff oh man like that's 
that's like three off of the DC right there just for being creative right. and deciding to go ahead and use a skill which is not normally associated with investigation in an investigatory way. It's like when people want to go ahead and say, you know, what do I know about this area? But, you know, they don't necessarily want to do like a history check, but they want to do like an arcana check or a religion check or, or you know, or a perception check. You know, what are the things that are unusual about this area? You use all your skills like your characters are diverse enough that all of the skills somebody is good in all of them and everyone doing an investigation check is not the best use of that resource right dovetailing from what josh says said it's important to note that with skill checks find different ways to have it work right so you can have four different characters look at that we're going to stick with the wizard's office because i think it's a great example right yep. four different characters are looking at one is going to use, say, hey, I'm a wizard. I, uh, uh, What do I recognize around this room? What's my arcana check? Well, you know from this symbol on this book, he studied at such and such a school with, of wizardry. And, and you know that that school specializes on X, Y, and Z or places to hide or non-magical wards or things like that. Or your or your history check that said, hey, yeah, because Wizard ABC went to that same school, and Wizard ABC is known for these things. You know that. You know. Exactly. So you've got two different characters using two different skills that can get an answer. So as a storyteller, you can you can answer these questions. But what you want to do is reward all the players who are successful with their roles or successful with coming up with innovative ways. So you've got to give them the different elements of it. So be prepared to answer those questions with more than you found it. Give them some insight. Give them some extra candy to go with the, the MacGuffin that they have just found, right? And it can be different things. Like maybe somebody recognizes, maybe one of the player characters was a guild artisan and he had put in his backstory, they were, his family were um, upholsterers. He says, I'm just going to look around. You're like, you know what? I'll give you a tool proficiency or I'll give you advantage because, you know, upholstery, you see that the upholstery is pulled up on that chair because you're that's something from your background. You now have the ability to know something that somebody else would have missed. These are ways that you can explore the room with your player characters utilizing different skills. I haven't said it in one of our podcasts yet. Uh, but Glenn has seen me do it. I do skill checks and aiding uh, party uh, party members a little differently. I like to keep people involved in, in skill checks, specifically in the exploration pillar. So if a player one is going to use a skill to figure something out, player two wants to aid them, player one doesn't roll two D20s. The player doing the aid, they roll the D20, and then the player who was running the skill check they add their bonus to whichever D20 they want. That way, both players are actively involved in what's going on. Oh, interesting. On. Okay. Which is small, but it is kind of cool as somebody who plays on the other side of it because you're aiding and you actually get to do something. It may just be dropping a die in case it's higher, but you rolled it, so you did help. Hmm. It's kind of cool. And I huh. tell you, the times when player A bombs or rolls a critical failure and player B rolls enough to make that successful, it is, even though we're at a virtual table right now, it is high fives all around. Everybody is stoked about that. And I love doing that. Consider that for your table and, and consider that as a good method to aid, especially in the exploration pillar. If you don't want to do it all the time, perfectly get it. But if it's the hunting check, if it's the what's coming up, 
feel free to use that little technique. Moving into skill challenges, however, this is where you bring the whole party in. To find what needs to be found in that wizard's office, it's going to take four successes. But if there are three failures before there are four successes, you don't find it. That's where you call, call in that skill challenge. And then it doesn't matter what skill people use as long as the players are narratively describing how they're using their skills to aid the group in the challenge. And much like we did with the exploration pillar as a whole, before we get into the skill challenges piece of this, let's take a second just to define what skill challenges are, because this is not, I think that they're becoming more common at the table now, and there's been a lot of discussion uh, on podcasts like ours about what skill challenges are and how to use them. The, a, a quick definition is that a skill challenge, like Liwanika said, is a group challenge moving through a scenario where the storyteller sets a difficulty, uh, like a difficulty challenge rating for any check that happens, and a number of successes that need to be reached in the course of that scenario. So in the, you know, the example that Lee was just talking about, it's the, you're searching the wizard's office. Each player going sequentially has to succeed. Uh, and, and there have to be four total successes before, uh, before three failures. Cause once a skill challenge reach, reaches three failures, it's done. Right. So that, that's one example. Another example that I used at my table recently, there was a, a big uh, storm that hit. They were on a, they were on a boat moving from point A to point B, a big storm hit out of the blue. Um, and so the, players all of a sudden were thrust into action and now they're not sailors and so they had to find ways to participate in helping the crew with this sudden storm right um and uh it was uh uh it wasn't just a an issue where um three failures like straight up would do it it was like kind of a graduated failure rate so if there had been three so they had to get less than three failures to succeed totally but there was a, there was a condition for four failures for five failures for six failures and for seven failures if they didn't get the seven successes first because it was a hard skill challenge um and so that's what we're talking about is that those kind of scenarios where there's a series of challenges going on each player makes a check generally in initiative order or some other order uh, as determined at the table um, and that there is a target number of successes for the group before the group gets a target number of failures. We're not going to get too far into it, but there's because there's a ton of stuff out there on the internet. Uh, I'm sure we will wind up doing a skill challenge episode at some point here. We don't have one yet, but that's what that's what skill challenges are and how they can be used in the exploration pillar i think that's a really great example you know because there's any number of narrative reasons why that wizard's tower if you hit three failures is no longer searchable you can't find the thing maybe the wizard is coming back and you've only got a limited amount of time to do your searching before you are discovered to be rifling through cranky wizards under things, right? You know, so that's one option. Maybe the wizard has put theft protection devices within. So it's like, you know, after three failures, if you're not searching properly, you accidentally flip the wrong switch and something gets set on fire. Or maybe the wizard is watching through his arcane eye that's invisible yep. in the corner of the room or in the uh, bus that's sitting on his desk. And when he sees that you've failed three times, he determines you're not smart enough to get the goods that he was offering to the first smart party to enter his tower. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So he, he shuts you down because you didn't cut, you didn't cut it. I would actually say that uh, one of the, er the earliest moments that gave me an idea of how 
certain types of skill challenges could work, not specifically exploration-based, was at Glenn's table where we had, believe it or not, an avalanche scenario, but we were inside a cave. It was less group, but it was definitely the party. Like, your skills moved you forward. The avalanche was moving at a pace, and the things you did could impact other people depending on your choices. So while it wasn't the classic skill challenge, it was a series of roles and challenges that you were engaging in to get forward and beat the thing that was coming at you. Yeah. And that's a great way to, to run exploration, by the way, too, is like there's like you've got a limited time because otherwise you're going to be encountered in snow. How are you getting out of this situation? Right. How are you how are your players going to find the cave that they can get to that will protect them from the avalanche uh, or, you know, or what are they going to do? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. No small part about the avalanche I ran three sessions ago came from playing in the avalanche that Glenn ran a little over a year and a half ago. It was, I saw that and said, I really like that. I think I can do something with it. I, think I can use that, yeah. And, and at first my thought was, I can't put it in a cave and have it just happen to people. That would be abjectly stealing. So I did a straight up avalanche in the, in the open where they had to run through the trees and get to a cliff face and get in. But at the end of the session I just closed last night, I avalanched the tunnel just like Glenn did and had people running. Got I was wondering if you were going Sometimes. straight up full steel and you would have been welcome to. I, I almost posted for you guys for the uh, one of the other episodes that I wasn't able to be a part of where we were discussing traps, that full scenario, because it was basically the party versus collapsing tunnel. And it got a roll every turn on its initiative for how far it moved. And everybody got their own dex check and how they got their result depended on how much of their movement they got. And yeah. And I say, write that up and put it with the pack. One of the best scenario, single scenarios I've ever played in. Brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. For, for those of you listening at home, so what Glenn is referencing there is that uh, we were recently, Lee Wanika and I uh, met with uh, Mike from the 19 Hits the Dragon podcast, Great uh, where we discussed uh, traps. Yeah, it's a fantastic podcast. We were honored to be on it for one. Yeah, sorry I didn't make it, Mike. I promised to talk about that one while I was there, but I wasn't able to. Uh, but it's, it's a fabulous podcast. That episode will be out in June. Uh, we will certainly uh, promote the hell out of it when it does because that's a that's a fabulous show. Their podcast is fantastic, so um, be watching for that. Next on the list, uh, and Lou and Nika, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw this to you because I I'm not totally sure how you wanted to go with this. But the next one that you had on the list here under the exploration tier was tool proficiencies. Talk about that. How how do you work tool proficiency checks? In into exploration. This was a bit of a red herring and a call out <laughs> and a call to action. But I'm actually calling out yes, but I'm calling out myself more than anything else. I know that in the game of 5v that tool proficiencies are probably among the least used mechanics. Yeah, unless you're an artificer. Or running a nautical campaign, that's what I'm actually working on. Right. Mm, so okay. there are very specific niches where some tools are used more often than not. Now, I say that with the exception of bards using musical instruments, right? Thieves uh, okay, using sure. thieves tools. There are a couple things that are very common, but your standard Boyer Fletcher, your standard, you know, blacksmith tools, obviously used by a forge cleric or an artificer or all these other things are very common. Some tools are very often used, but other tools not so much. So... How about the person who does uh, the upholstery? How does that impact exploration? 
How about the gem cutter? What do they do with exploration? I know there's ore in these here in them their hills. You know, there are different tools, and I'm not going to go through the list of tool proficiencies right now. I put this here because I want storytellers to think when characters being built and when they have tool proficiencies, storytellers think about that. And sometimes because they're so infrequently used, if your player seems stumped, this is where storytellers can support their players and generate the kind of play at the table that they're looking to get, promote it. You could always say, you may not have all the skills, but that tool proficiency, because you have it, would let you know you could use that or use the knowledge based on that. I don't often use the tool itself, but the fact that you were trained to use that tool I will let you use that knowledge in some cases. So that's just the way I play. I figured out what you're saying. I was super confused for a little while, but I think I got it now. Let me sum up and see, and you tell me if I'm right, because I like it now. At first I was like, what the hell is he talking about? You're challenging storytellers like me, like Josh, like yourself to realize that your characters have these tool skills. Yes. Know what your character's tool skills are. And plan that into your environments. Make sure if you've got a smith who makes a point of hitting up the local blacksmith shop in his downtime to earn his keep, doing his own repairs on his armor and that kind of thing, that at some point, one of your environments that they have to explore, search, investigate, or learn something about is going to be a big forge area. Absolutely. Forge area. A big forge shop, a big metal shop. Or if you know, you know you've got somebody who's Got the alchemy skill. You can have you can deliberately plan that out and make sure that there's an alchemist lab at some point. So they have an opportunity to showcase that skill set during exploration, which will make the exploration more meaningful for them and give them an opportunity to let their character shine. Absolutely. That is exactly what I was going for. Thank you for that. Hmm. My Lee Eco translation skills are strong. Yeah, and that's really interesting because like I will fully admit that as a storyteller, I worry about uh, or I am, I feel like I have my hand on the pulse of a lot of different things that are going on at my table, and tool proficiencies are not one of them. Like that's that's I'll not take something. That call out. You know, I will, I will, I will fully admit that. Yeah. I mean, this is something that's going to go in every adventure. But I mean, when you're going campaign long, you should try to work something like that. And for each of your characters, it's an area of opportunity for me. Sure. Yeah, I, I call myself out when I said that because I don't do it enough. I've done it for a couple players a couple of times. But it's not as consistent as I think could be used to make the right. exploration pillar. When we put this on the schedule, it was more because I didn't feel I was doing this pillar enough justice and enough credit. This entire episode is a call out to me by us and to us by me to say, hey, here's this thing that we know a lot about. We actually touch on the exploration pillar much more than many other storytellers I've been around, and that's not to say other storytellers are bad, it's just one of those things that has fell out of favor. So I'm saying there's so much good stuff in here and so much opportunity for fun times and good times and memorable times at the table. It's a great refresher course for our mind to kind of think about how we can do some of these things better. And I think tool proficiencies, one of the lesser used things in the game rises to the top of if there's any one thing you could do that could that could make things a little different a little bit more memorable i think just doing this for a couple times you take that shy player who actually agonized over that tool proficiency selection quietly in the corner that you barely noticed 
and they think that that decision never mattered. That first character they ever played, if you never in that first campaign use that tool proficiency, I can guarantee you that player will never bother with tool proficiencies again. It won't matter. But if you take that brand new player and you highlight that tool proficiencies in a memorable moment or create a memorable moment around it, every character they ever do from that point forward will will find a way to say, hey, I'm going to take this tool proficiency because it's cool or I can do something cool with it. Yeah, that's how you get them to value their background. Absolutely. And I think that that really goes into the next point that you had on the list here, and that's the mundane equipment, you know, the the non-proficiency tools that were so common in second edition. Like, I remember them being in second edition, when you're making your character, you got to make sure that whatever gold you've got to go ahead and start, that you go through your equipment list and you have your 50 feet of rope and you have your hiking pythons and you have 12 torches and you have... Uh, you have 10 days worth of rations uh, and you have crampons in case you hit snow and you have all, you know, you have, you know, you have caltrops because they're always going to be handy in case something is chasing you. And you've got, you know, even if you're not proficient in it, you've got your bow and you've got your arrow so you can go hunting and you've got, all, you know, like all these, all these things that were so important in second edition because you never knew when you were going to need them. I think it kind of got packaged up in third edition when you could buy or not, not buy, but when, when you took a particular character with a particular background, you were given a pack of equipment and there was like the explorer's pack that said okay here you go you've got you have rope you have you know you have pythons you have all these things um or if you're the noble pack okay if you're the noble pack you've got ink you've got quills you've got paper there you go you know like and so like they kind of parsed out these packs of stuff to players um Maybe it's because the the exploration pillar is less emphasized, is less explicitly emphasized, like Glenn said earlier, that now the equipment necessary to explore in a dynamic environment is also less emphasized. Part of that is definitely true because, I mean, they definitely did the packs and they made those more convenient and a little bit of a discount. I kind of liked it because the idea there was to streamline character building because some people got into micromanaging their equipment. Oh, way into the weeds, yeah. And others really, really didn't. I used to play with somebody who called it the Pete's Standard Traveling Adventurers Pack or something like that. So as long as it was within reason, you could assume you had it on you. That was just his rule. And that was a little bit too far you know, into the pack direction. But you can still buy everything individually, but it did seem to pare the list down some. So, yeah, I definitely agree that it doesn't seem to be the focus, but the option's still there. It's a matter of whether or not you choose to use it. Yep. And it's, again, we go back to, is the storyteller creating the game where it's necessary and supportive? I think there are more players out there that would pay attention to it than not, as long as it mattered to the storyteller and they allowed it to be cool. Perfect example was the game we're in this weekend because he asked us if we were getting, doing anything else around town before we headed out. No, we were all good. No, he's like, we no shopping and, anything? And we're like, we just want to get on with the adventure, man. Let's go. He's right. like, okay. Half a day goes on. He goes, you're all exhausted because you didn't get cold weather gear. Right, and we're, and we're marching into the snow, and you're only making half time. So we're like, all right, let's go back to town. We won't make that <laughs> mistake again. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right, got you. I see, I see. We've got a week's journey, blue. so... Half a day back to town makes more sense than yeah, half days. Six for, and a half days yeah, exhausted. Here's yeah. the deal. We're fighting some big bad guys. We're high, relatively high, high level. We're like 10th level. I'm not going to be 10th or 11th level going against big bad, bad undead guys. 
Uh, Always throw in disadvantage. (laughs) Throwing in disadvantage. No, no, no. No, no, no. So, and, and, and similarly, in the game that I ran this this past weekend, it, it's the same thing. It's like when they got to the point where they finished the avalanche and then they're like, you can go out into the elements or you can stay in the cave where you're somewhat protected, okay? And how are you going to go ahead and uh, protect yourself because the wind is blowing into the cave? And they're like, well, tents? Like, no, we left those when the avalanche came. We ran. We didn't take them with us. All right, so there's no tents. Uh, they're like, well, I guess we got a couple. Well, I guess you can use your you can use your pitons and pin up your sleeping bags and your bed rolls to kind of block some of the wind. And mm. now you've got no blankets. <laughs> mm. um, these are some of the things that came up because I'm running in the north along the lines of Rhyme of the Frostmaid, uh, Frost uh, where they did put a big emphasis on equipment. Yep, and resource management. Yeah, and resource management. If yeah. they're if we ever get our Dark Sun game, they'll do the same thing, different kind of gear, uh, but it'll be there. Right. Water management, if you're playing Ghost of Saltmarsh or a naval campaign. Or Tomb of Annihilation. I mean, in my Tomb of Annihilation game uh, that I was a player in, oh, God, resource management was a huge component of that because mm-hmm. you're dealing with things with bugs that will, that will cause exhaustion. You need to go ahead and have solve to keep yourself from getting eaten alive by the bugs in the jungle. You need to know exactly how much food you've got because you are weeks away from the closest town where you can buy things. Once you're outside of Port Nianzaru, like, and in the middle of the jungle, like, you can't just... You, you can't just go hunting and eat what you find because it might just be poisonous. Don't eat the frog. Along those lines, because I'm a big fan of Naked and Afraid, that's how I think of Tomb of Annihilation. If you watch Naked and Afraid in any of the jungle environments, it'll kill you. I mean, it's, it's yeah. no joke. Yeah. You know, things are bad out there. And, and I think about those things. So I think uh, to the point Glenn made, these are all elements of exploration, equipment, mundane equipment, not just the magical ways out, are all part of the, the current game. But it's whether or not the storyteller brings it out as important. And here's what I will say about mundane equipment. Obviously, when your characters get higher levels, their hit points, their magical spells, things like that give them ways around almost all of this. If you want to really do exploration well, in levels one through five, when they don't have all of those abilities, that's when you really drive home the need for the equipment. I can guarantee you in a game where that's an important element in the early levels, the players will just still do it at the higher levels because they remember it and it ended up being a fun element. It's a way of showcasing how they do things or the way they do things. It makes for a good campfire scene. If it's like, hey, while we're tending fire, while I'm collecting wood, we're going to do this, this, and this. Those scenes happen when you make exploration part of the game from the start all the way through the middle and into the finish. Luna, you sort of brushed by our kind of final point uh, on the list here um, uh, when you talked about about rangers, and that really uh, particularly... Look, if, you, if any of our listeners want to get our feeling on Rangers, listen to the episodes that we did breaking out the Ranger subclasses. There's a big discussion there about how Rangers were in earlier editions versus how they are now in 5th edition. Uh, and really, I think in this facet of the game is really the place where universally Rangers are still super useful. Because of the diversity of skill proficiencies that they get, because of the diversity of tool proficiencies they can get, uh, because of the skills that they bring 
to the exploration tier. They're just they're just more diverse, other than maybe the the rogue scout, which is a point that we made on that episode about how the rogue scout is a better ranger than any of the ranger subclasses. But if you're going to play a ranger, this is really where your character is going to shine because because of the way that those that those characters are built. This is where I'm gonna say jokingly we dog on rangers a lot with because of the reverence we have for rangers overall and throughout all editions, right? This is where if you're a storyteller for a player who's playing a ranger and want and you want to make that ranger shine, so all the other areas where they may not necessarily rise to the top, this is where you make them rise to the top. This is where when the yeah. party's trudging through the snow, the ranger who has the Arctic as their environment or the mountain as their environment now gets makes the whole party travel without disadvantage. Like they move move through that area as though it was regular, unimpeded, simply because they have a ranger in the party. That's great. And you may know it and make the time pass, but if you don't call it out to the players in scene that the ranger's doing this, like actually talk about what the ranger's doing or allow the we'll player have the ranger to talk about it. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Best yet, let the ranger talk about how they're doing it. But if you don't allow them to do that, and then you don't call out to the party, you feel rested when you get to, you feel pretty good by the time you get to the campsite because the ranger got it done. Yep. Right? Make that clear. And make sure they know the reason why you started that fight not exhausted was because the ranger was there. That's how you make a ranger shine. The, when they get up and their stuff is not soaking wet because the ranger picked the right cut, the, the right campsite, You've got to do that. The ranger's checks are extremely important. Talk about how another party didn't have a ranger and they camped in the spot that was bad and you show their campsite flooded out, everybody's exhausted, and show off the fact that your party's ranger got the job done. I am blessed with a player who plays a ranger exceptionally well and and does a great job, uh, unprompted, of talking about what she's doing in nearly every camp scene we have. To do that, and Go ahead, I also give her the shout out. Yeah, Jen handles it. Jen handles it like as a Bertrand, as Bertrand the Goliath. And the reason it works is because she understands this is the thing that the mechanics truly support what a ranger should be, and she's going to showcase that. So it, it, it's a great way to get it done. And so, no small part of exploration should be done without the the knowledge and acceptance that a ranger's uh, a, a great class to have as part of your party. And if you don't, you better get one as a sidekick. All right, Lee Wanika. So earlier you were talking about the Wilderness Kit Dungeon Master Screen Kit that you brought. Um, can you tell us why that helps you with exploration tier uh, tier adventures and and uh, and what tools it has available to you? So it's got several things that are involved. There is a hex map uh, that's whiteboarded, so you can kind of make that work to your advantage if need be. But there are all kinds of different things that it has. It talks, it, it's got all the standard stuff you expect a uh, DM screen to have, but it talks about actions in combat, uh, all that good stuff. But getting into exploration, it has initiative cards, which are nice, and they have nice little landscapes on it. It's got uh, condition cards, which are also pretty cool. It's got a little box that you can put together for all these cards. And uh, so it's got all of those. But it also talks about some different things. And these are all little handouts that it has. So you can very quickly and easily keep them right at the ready or hand them to players if they question it. But there's a table for wilderness uh, encounters. 
They've got cycles of the journey that includes weather, pace, navigation, uh, encounters, supplies, and progress. So different ways to track what you're doing while you're on your various journeys. And it also has a, a little mini rule set for wilderness chases. Different things that can go wrong, generic DCs, things like that. So if you, ha if you haven't got things pre-planned out, but you're like, this feels natural, I want to throw it in here because it's what's going on at the table, it's a great resource to just grab and go, and it's on a little card, so it's easy to do. And that's all the handouts. That's not even the actual DM screen itself. DM screen, it's a little weird because it's shorter and smaller than most other ones. Uh, but it has all the standard stuff, but it, you know, damage levels, uh, in, uh, in one area. It's got skills and it lists what skills and their parent abilities, just like you'd expect. It goes into long jump, high jump, suffocating, concentration, exhaustion. It goes through, like I said, all the conditions. It has a weather chart and table. I believe most of the stuff here is actually presented in several other publications as well, but this is great so you don't have to bring all the books. You can just take this with you. Uh, but it also lists some rules for extreme cold, extreme heat, strong wind. It's got a table for travel pace, services and general costs, encounters and encounter distances, uh, wilderness navigation, audible distances, excellent in the exploration pillar. If you talk about how far you can be heard in various environments, this is a great table. Quick reference, uh, light conditions, how far light can be seen, obscured areas, visibility outdoors, vessel speeds, whether it be airships, sailing ships, uh, and then general food, drink, and lodging, and then foraging rules. This was actually pretty decent, and they're all things that I can use. Honestly, I kind of just know that it's there, and I know what it's around. And then when I'm writing my adventures or planning my sessions, I take out what I need uh, and then write it into the session that I'm going to do. Yeah, particularly those roll tables sound really useful, uh, like the, the wilderness roll table and stuff like that. So that sounds really great. Good stuff. And it's very helpful for newer storytellers that are trying to figure this out. If you're listening to this podcast saying, I'm picking up what you're laying down, but I'm still not sure. Um, look, I'm not sponsored by these guys, um, but I will say, go to your local game shop, pick up this kit. I don't know a local hobby store that doesn't have these usually on their shelves, but just go and get the Wilderness Kit screen. It's a great screen, and it'll help you with this pillar. Something else that I was thinking, too, that would be really uh, useful for new storytellers, and we're going we're gonna to promote some of our own stuff here a little bit here, um, but... One thing that I noticed about running the Candlekeep mystery uh, actual play series that we're doing is how much exploration factored into those mysteries, obviously, because, you know, as a group, particularly the first one, you know, you guys needed to go from room to room to room. You needed to explore each individual room. You needed to look behind certain things. You needed to make sure that you were explicitly looking in particular places to go ahead and get particular information. Um, and so if you're looking for how to run that sort of thing effectively, um, Candlekeep Mysteries is a great source of information for how to go ahead and structure things like that. How do you structure... You 
know, the first one takes place basically inside of a building, and so it is room to room. Uh, but that can easily be be translated to uh, to either another another building, right? It doesn't have to be that explicit one, or even dungeons, right? Where instead of being in a building with a library and a study and everything like that, but maybe you're in a dungeon or a cave with you know certain rooms where they're ha- they're stashing treasure in one room and there's enemies in another room or something like that. So sewers. Sewers. Oh, absolutely. Sewers are fantastic. Also, another great example of a of a, of a source of information that you can use uh, to get inspiration for how to go ahead and run uh, run exploration pillar events. In fact, you could deliberately use that if you're out there as a storyteller, just trying to grow your skill set. If you've recently played and or read a module that was awesome in terms of the exploration pillar or the way they, the it was run. You know, go pick up the module and read it. Pick up the tips from it. We're not saying, like Lee said earlier, you know, you don't have to blatantly steal direct, but pick up the tips from it. Look at what they're doing. Look at how they're explaining, describing, framing the information and and setting the scenes. And another piece of advice there, always, 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 this is for anybody in writing or storytelling, be specific. Car is not anywhere near as dynamic as canary yellow porsche you don't have to go all the way to canary yellow if you don't want to but be specific don't use general terms don't settle for just i don't know there's a chest in the corner i am a big fan of of describing doors and the reason i do that is because i've played in so many games where at least two of my players are fond of breaking them so I will often describe this is a standard door. It's wood. It looks like it's relatively sturdy, but it wouldn't survive a good beating. Or I will talk about this is a strong door. The planks of wood are thick. They're heavy, made from heavy timbers, and they are bolted, banded with metal with steel rivets that are sturdy and thick. Uh, there are ways to describe that. Describe odors, acrid smell of steaming chemicals uh, are left in the residue of this lab that you've just walked into. The smell of uh, pine soot uh, from the freshly stamped out fire. Um, There are ways to do that. You don't have to be Tom Clancy or Stephen King in your 18-page descriptions. However, you can do something a lot better than there's a red book on the table. There's, there's a medium in there, and uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, the other day where uh, three wise DMs were talking about, generally, if you're giving a description as a, as a storyteller or a DM, you want about five lines, and you want to hit on one big topic you want your players to come away with, and, and that's a great technique. I think it's something that Josh has always done, Glenn has always done, it's something I try to always do. Uh, I don't know if we actually succinctly put it to those words, but I think that is really appropriate for this discussion. If you're a storyteller and you're describing the scene, what's the one thing you want people to take away from it? Uh, Similarly, if you're a player, when you're describing something that your player's doing or the place where your player's from, what's the one thing you want people to know about? Um, When I talk about my hometown growing up, I will always talk about the fact that Cornell University is there and the county I'm from has the most single drop waterfalls anywhere in the world within a uh, 10 mile radius. Those are the things that I remember about it. It's the water, it's the Cornell clock tower. That's my big takeaway for my hometown when I'm describing it. 
So I'm describing my home. I'm describing the exploration of my hometown. That's my, those are my takeaways. I'm going to lead with one of those two things, depending on how the players come to that, come to that town. Okay. Uh, so we hope that you all enjoyed. Um, Luinica, Glenn, any, any final words before we wrap up here? Or? Yeah, I'm going to say players, when you're out, players and storytellers, get out there and explore your campaign worlds. A campaign does not take place in one room or in one building. Your combats are not over or are not on a plain field. Whether you're using minis or or dungeon forge or 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 hexes, populate that differently. I have thousands of maps because I want different locations for everything. I don't want to reuse the same map unless people are going back to the same place. And I try not to have that happen too too often. Get out there into your campaign worlds, whether they're homebrew or or pre-printed, and explore them. Enjoy yeah, them. And exp- exploration is happening whether or not you know it's happening. Like that's that's I think honestly the point that I want to underscore more than anything else here is that while you're in combat, you're exploring. While you're in roleplay mode, you're exploring. You know, it, it's not like exploration is not one of those things that that as a storyteller we're going to say okay now we have had our role-playing part and now we're exploring it's all interwoven it'd be more fun if we did that it'd be it'd be much easier to go ahead and keep track of when we're in exploration mode if me as the storyteller said okay and now for the next hour we're going to explore nice no combat no role-playing just look around just look around exactly (laughs) nothing but skill checks for an hour (laughs) and then people would leave our tables um (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but no you're 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 both right of course and with the exploration tier it really does just make up all those details in between if it's not the active role play and it's not the active combat all the details in between about where the combat's taking place what you're standing on who's around what's hidden where, and what the players do, and they'll surprise you. Trust me. You're going to expect them to be all kinds of paying attention to the big giant fountain with the lights and the signs and the arrows, but they're going to get really fascinated by the really small bookshelf on the other side of the room with no books on it and just like an abacus. And they're going to search that for an hour, and you got to keep coming up with weird stuff. All right, everybody. Thank you uh, again, as always, so very much for listening. Uh, Thank you to all of the brand new patrons that we have had join us uh, within the last couple of weeks. I mean, that's been uh, that's been fabulous Um, having having so many uh, new and old friends uh, join us there. Thank you very much. Yeah, our uh, second session of the Candlekeep actual play uh, will actually drop on the Monday after you're hearing uh, this episode. So uh, look forward to that. Check it out for more exploration. We uh, it's the middle uh, middle episode of our run through through the first of the Candlekeep missions. So it's going to be a good time. Uh, and uh, also we've got uh, other big things coming up. So please uh, make sure like subscribe. Uh, we'd it's love to go ahead and hear your feedback everything. as you always. Can help it what's that said and sprocket touches everything he can't help sprocket does touch everything it's it's yeah that's very much uh that's very much sprocket's thing i'm expecting him to start tasting things too so thankfully he didn't taste anything in this mythical mansion because that could have been bad but so anyway thank you very much everybody and we will talk to you again soon thank you for joining us this has been tabletop journeys we would love to hear your feedback on our show today 
You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our side quest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.